400 years of silence. Then all of a sudden, a prophet appears. This was not just any prophet. Matthew 1.11 says, Among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, today we have an opportunity to look at his ministry. So I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 1. And today we're looking at verses 5 through 8. Mark chapter 1. And just so that we have the entire thought, I'm going to begin reading at verse 4. It says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching And saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. As we listen to those verses, as I read them, we see that we are now introduced to the subjects of baptism, repentance, confession, And I want to begin by stating firmly that baptism doesn't save you. There are many who believe that it does, and churches like the Church of Christ, the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox churches, Lutherans, Methodists, Nazarenes, that's just to name a few that do believe in baptismal regeneration. But the Bible teaches in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we're saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. When the Bible talks about being baptized, it always is spoken as the result of salvation and not the condition. For example, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41... It says, so then those who had received his word were baptized. You notice first they received the word of God, which the context tells us it was the gospel that Peter preached. And then they were baptized and they were added to the church. Over in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, if you're following me, verse 12, it says, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And if you'll notice again the order there, after they had believed the good news about the kingdom of God and about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then they were baptized. Over in chapter 8 of Acts in verse 13, It says, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. So again, he believed first, and then he was baptized. If you're still in chapter 8, look down at verse 36. It says, as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the Eunuch said, and he's speaking to Philip, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now notice what Philip says. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Well, if you take the verses that I have just read to you, they clearly indicate that baptism is a result of salvation and not a condition for it. 
And we can also conclude that any verse or verses that sounds like you have to be baptized in order to be saved is interpreted incorrectly. Because if what we just read is true, and it is, then the overall interpretation is baptism does not save. And the same is true for Mark 16 and verse 16, which says this, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. I promise you that this verse is not teaching baptismal regeneration. It's clear that the one who has disbelieved shall be condemned, and he's being condemned because of his unbelief and not for not being baptized. That's not the only example we have, but we also have the example of the thief on the cross. If you remember, there were two thieves that were nailed to crosses on each side of the Lord Jesus, him in the middle. And we're told that one of them believed. But if you read the story, there's no possible way for him to be baptized. So the question then would be asked... Was he not saved? And if that's the case, then wouldn't Jesus be lying? The account is found in Luke 23, if you want to turn there. And verses 39 to 43 record the conversation. This is the thief, one of them, talking to the other thief. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You'll notice it says nothing there about baptism, because baptism does not save. We're going to say much more about that in just a few moments, but as we've been studying in Mark's gospel, we've already looked at Verse 1, that gave us the title, which says, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we, we learn that this gospel that Mark is penning, it is about Jesus Christ. It's showing us the gospel about Him, His life, His ministry, His works, His teaching. And it's also demonstrating to us from all of that that He is the Son of God. And so, even to demonstrate that, Mark begins with the prophecy of Isaiah in verses 2 and 3. And by doing that, he mentions here John the Baptist. And John the Baptist here is given as the forerunner. Notice what Mark says in verse 2. As it is written, in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, Make his paths straight. And so John the Baptist is mentioned here more than 700 years before he appears. And Isaiah is telling us that he is the one that is a voice crying in the wilderness, the one who would make ready the way of the Lord. And now as we look down at verses 4 through 8, we are introduced to the forerunner of Christ. And we saw his revealing. Verse 4 tells us that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. And then we saw his preaching. Mark says John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Kent Hughes makes this statement about verse 4. 
He says, when he stood before the people in the wasteland, lean, gaunt, solitary, he preached with fire. We can be sure that like the prophets of old, he wept. He wept like Jesus and Paul and Whitfield and Moody. Everything together, his character, his message, and his passion reached the multitudes. And now we're brought to his baptism. And as you look at verse 5, and also keeping in mind verse 4, we have the ministry of John the Baptist. His ministry of preaching a gospel of repentance and his ministry of preaching baptism. He says in verse 5, All the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Several things that we can note from verse 5. First of all, it says that everyone was coming to John. You have all the country of Judea, all the people of Jerusalem. You take in the account of Matthew chapter 3 and verse 5, which says, And all the district around the Jordan. If you go into... Chapter 4 and verse 25 of Matthew, it says, Large crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. In other words, he was drawing great crowds. He was drawing great attention because, again, there had been a period of 400 years where there was no prophet. And then all of a sudden... John the Baptist appears in the wilderness preaching. Now when he says all, this, this all is rhetorical. It's really, again, just stressing the, the widespread interest that was aroused by John's preaching. You have centuries of silence. And now you have this prophetic voice of John. And this was certainly causing problems with the Jews. And so there was a massive outpouring of those coming to his preaching, coming to his baptism. It's been estimated, and I don't know where they get the numbers from, but there were two people I read this. Numbers were a little different, but they estimate that as many as 300,000 people came out to be baptized by John. Again, I don't know how they got the numbers. But what's interesting is if you look there at verse 5, it says that they were going out to him. What you don't hear is what is taking place in the Greek, which is so interesting because the imperfect tense is used here, and because of that tense, it's telling us that they kept going out to him. This was a continuous stream of people just kept going out there, just kept going into the wilderness And I believe because they mentioned Jerusalem going out, that that indicates that he was drawing also 20 miles away from the Jordan River because that's how far Jerusalem was from the Jordan River. And then it says that in verse 5, everyone was being baptized by John. Or does it? That's what verse 5 seems to imply. But notice there it says all. And all the country of Judea. And all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean everyone. All doesn't always mean all. We know that from other places in Scripture that do the same thing. This is what R.C. Sproul calls literary exaggeration. Indicating that the covenant people are going out to John in a great, crowd, no doubt, as entire families. Now, if you were to go to the parallel passage, which is over in Matthew 3, you have two other groups that are present. You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It says in Matthew 3, 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So, The people there are from Jerusalem, they're from Judea, they're from all the district around the Jordan. And these were the people being baptized. Obviously, the Pharisees were not, nor were the Sadducees. 
But it does beg a question now. And the question is this, because I really believe if you understand the answer to this question, you understand the text. And you understand really what I stated when I began showing you that baptism doesn't save you. And so the question is this, what is baptism? Most of you in here have been baptized by water. Some have been baptized here. Some have been baptized at other churches or outside the church, maybe at a a pond or the beach. But there are a couple things we need to look at. First, let's start with the definition. The word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo. The ancients used to use this word in a variety of ways. The word means to dip. It means to immerse. It means to bathe. It means to drown. It means to sink, to perish, to go under. That's what you get when you trace down the etymology of the word. There's one significant usage of the word that references a ship sinking. And it's using this word, baptizo. The Greeks also used this word to describe the dying of a garment. Where the entire garment was plunged in and then taken back out. You also might find it very interesting to note that because there was disagreement with the translators in the King James Bible, they decided to only transliterate this word and not give us the meaning. Baptizo is the Greek word, but if you take baptizo and you spell it out, you get baptize. So it's not even a word. It's the same way it's like the word deacon, diakonos, is the Greek word that we use for deacon, but we transliterate that into English and it becomes deacon, and that too is not a word. There's another word we do that to, and it's Jehovah. Jehovah is not a word, but a transliteration of a Hebrew word. So you find that we we come up with words and terms and and, and we try to make it to where we can understand, but sometimes those words and terms don't really justify their usage. But what they could have done and just solved the problem for everybody is just translated the word dip or immerse. That would have helped. But as I said, there are many views. And let me give you what a few of them are. Let's take, for example, sprinkling. I don't know if any of you have come from a church where they sprinkled. But there are two passages, I believe, in the New Testament that make the view of sprinkling an impossibility. Okay? Uh, The first one is in Mark 5. And let me just read it to you again. It says, All the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. The second passage is John 3.23. And it says this, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and people were coming And we're being baptized. You'll notice that both verses talk about John baptizing where there was much water. One was in the Jordan River. One was in Anon near Salem. And so if this word baptizo means to sprinkle, then why did he need much water? All he would need would be just a a cup of water, for that matter, just to sprinkle it on But you need much water if you're going to immerse. If you're going to cause them to go under and come back up, you need a lot of water to do that. Did you know that the Catholics actually did practice immersion up till the 12th century? One Catholic scholar wrote this, Catholics admit that immersion brings out more fully the meaning of the sacrament And that for 12 centuries, it was the common practice. 
Another Catholic scholar wrote that in the early church, baptism was by immersion of the whole person, which is the only meaning of the New Testament word. A mere pouring or sprinkling was never thought of. And just to help us even further, there's no biblical support. And when I say that, I realize that someone's going to bring up Ezekiel 36.25, which says this. Ezekiel 36.25 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. But if you're looking into this in Ezekiel, find out that this is a figure of speech for cleansing. Just as the heart is mentioned in verse 26, talking about a heart of stone. Well, that's not saying that your heart is literally stone, right? You'd be dead. That's figurative language. And what they were doing was, was borrowing the terminology that came from the cleansing rituals from the law of Moses. And these particular cleansing rituals were pointed to a way in which Israel could be forgiven of their sin. So again, you can't really use that verse. Let me show you another place where it's used figuratively. Over in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 mentions baptism. But it's not referring to water baptism. There's another type of baptism taking place here. This is being immersed into Christ. It says... Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So those two verses is using figurative language to explain that all believers have died to the old self and that they have become a new self. And even verse 4 talks about being raised up from the dead. So again, if you look at the picture here of immersion going down into the water and then coming back up, and you apply that same picture to being immersed into Christ and being raised up with Christ, it follows the same pattern. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So immersion is the best understanding there. By seeing that John needed much water to baptize. It's also the best understanding when you use it figuratively for being baptized into Christ, to being baptized into his death and raised to new life. So baptism simply then is burial. Burial in water, or burial figuratively in Christ in His death and resurrection. Some say that baptism is part of your salvation. But again, baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't save anybody. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And you go, okay, wait a minute, you just said it doesn't save you. Read the rest of the verse. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. He's saying that water baptism, all it's going to do is give you a bath. That's it. It doesn't save you. He says what saves you is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when you go back to the baptism of repentance and the water baptism we find in verse 5, we're seeing that John the Baptist's baptism was symbolic. And what was it symbolic of? Well, it was symbolic of repentance. He says there in verse 4 that this was a baptism resulting from repentance. In other words, 
John's ministry was to preach the gospel and call the people to repent and come to the Messiah. And showing that you have repented, be baptized. Again, baptism doesn't produce repentance, it just shows you the result of it. Those who came were confessing their sins. And again, there were those who would not repent. I believe that's why John the Baptist called the Pharisees and Sadducees, you brood of vipers, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come, and then telling them to bear fruit worthy of repentance. You need to repent. Forgiveness, again, was the result, not the condition for the baptism. It says in Matthew 3, 6, And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So that marks the reality of their repentance. Now, I give you that much, but why baptize? Did you know that baptism took place long before John the Baptist? Did you know baptism is in the, in the Old Testament? It's in the cleansings, the washings. It's the same understanding. It's the same idea. For example, Jewish people, when they were wanting to be cleansed, would be baptized. And when a Gentile proselyte wanted to become part of the Jewish faith and the Jewish people, they had to be baptized. It was one time, not something ongoing, which I find it very interesting is that today some people have been baptized two, three, four, five times. Every time they change churches, they get baptized again. You only have to be baptized one time. One time. But I also realize that because of circumstances outside of a person, not everyone can be baptized. You might have a person that is ill, that cannot go anywhere. But we found out that there are ways to do it, right? Didn't we do that, Otis? We found a way of doing that. But again, you need to understand that when a Gentile decided to, again, join the Jewish faith, they were saying that they were leaving a life of paganism and they were accepting the God of the Jews, and so again, to demonstrate this, they were baptized. There was nothing extraordinary in John the Baptist's baptism but this. Calling for all Jews to do the same thing that the Gentiles needed to do. And he was basically telling them that they are outsiders. And they needed to be baptized and they were no more fit for the coming of the Messiah than the Gentiles were. Now that would be radical. Because the Jew didn't see himself in that way. And so just as I mentioned, you have some who came to the baptism, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They didn't see their need for cleansing. They didn't see their need for being prepared for the coming of the Messiah. They didn't even believe John. They were only careful about what they said about John because they knew the people believed John. And they believed that John was a prophet. So everyone coming to John, they were confessing their sins, which was giving indication that they had repented of their sins. And they were making themselves ready for the Messiah. Now, when it says everyone was confessing their sins, let me just say something about the word confessing. The word that he uses here, it means to confess, but it also means to agree. We even find places where it's translated praise. Over there in Joshua chapter 6 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in that situation where Achan had taken of the accursed thing, when they went in to, to take the land, and you remember they lost the battle against Ai, and that was because they were told not to take of anything when they went in. Do not go in and plunder, but Achan did. 
And he took some things and he buried them in his tent. And when it was discovered through a process that he was the one who had done it, you know what Joshua said to him? He said, give praise to God and make confession to him. Here's how you're going to praise God. You're going to tell me what you have done. And he did. He told him everything. The verb that is usually used in the Septuagint is the verb yada. Yada means to give thanks. In some instances, it refers to giving thanks to God. There are actually three main instances in which Jesus gives thanks to the Father, and this Greek word is used, Matthew eleven twenty five, Luke ten twenty one, and John eleven forty one. But in other cases, it's used for confessing sin. And so the word itself, when it's used of agreeing, it actually means to say the same thing. Who is the one that is telling you that you are a wretched sinner? It is God. It's God. It's God in His Word. And so when they were coming to the baptism, they were publicly and openly agreeing. And they were confessing their deeds. They were repenting. One commentator says, to confess one's sins as they were being baptized is to agree with God about them. John baptized no one who did not confess and repent of his sins. So again, you take the narrative in mind. They're coming out from Judea and Jerusalem and around the Jordan. They're hearing John preach a baptism of repentance. He's calling for them to repent. That wouldn't be the strange thing because they understood what repentance was. They understood what baptism was. But again, what would be the shocker for the Jewish people is to be told they're not ready for their Messiah. They needed to repent just like the Gentiles did. They needed to, to come to this baptism the same way that the Gentile proselytes were coming to the Jewish faith. Now, there, there begs another question here. What about paedo-baptism? Paedo-baptism is baptizing babies. Infant baptism. There is no support for that either. I sat some years ago watching and listening to a debate between John MacArthur, who believes in believer's baptism, and R.C. Sproul, who believes in infant baptism. That was an interesting debate to watch. And then I went back another year and I heard Alistair Begg preaching a baptism a believer's baptism, and opposing R.C. Sproul in infant baptism. Now, you have to understand these men. We're, nobody is going to agree on everything. But I think that there's strong evidence for believer's baptism and no evidence for infant baptism, even though that there is much written on the subject. And let me just kind of tell you what I'm thinking here, and this will be very quick. First of all, when you go back to the passage, it talks about John the Baptist preaching and baptizing, and they coming and confessing their sins, indicating that they were repenting. Can babies do that? Can babies confess? Can babies repent? Can babies do anything? But you know what they do. Well... This is what, again, many churches do practice. You have the Roman Catholic Church that practices this. And their understanding is that baptism actually removes their original sin. And so since that's the case, they want to baptize their babies. But again, they're not alone. There are some Reformed churches that practice infant baptism, and we don't. There are Presbyterian churches that practice infant baptism. 
Uh, and here's what they're here's their reasoning. They're saying that if you look in the Old Testament, you have circumcision. And all baptism is, is what circumcision was in the Old Testament. Sounds good. But there's nothing in the scripture to tell us that, right? They believe that infant baptism was a covenantal sign the same as Old Testament circumcision was a covenant sign. They don't believe it saves anybody. But they believe that by participating in it, you're participating in the Abrahamic covenant. And in the Abrahamic covenant, they say it included infants. And so, they say, as the Old Testament taught, that those entire households were circumcised, obviously excluding females. And they say that Entire households were baptized in the New Testament. When I go to Acts 16, where the Philippian jailer, you remember the story that after the Philippian jailer is spared his life, as you remember the, the earthquake happened, the chains fell off the prisoners, the doors swung open, and he was sure that the prisoners were gone. And Paul calls out to him, tells him not to do himself any harm because this guy was about to commit suicide. Because he, he was going to die anyway if he lost any prisoners. Because that was the consequences of that. Pretty high stressful job, wouldn't you say? And so, he doesn't do himself any harm. Paul and Silas, they preach the gospel to him. We know it's the gospel that he preaches. We also know that in order for them to get saved, each individual person had to believe but it sounds like the text is indicating that one could believe for everybody else. And this is when you get into interpretation and you say, first of all, that can't be the interpretation because you can't support it anywhere else in the Bible of household salvations. That I could be saved and baptized for my whole family. Some of us would say that would be great if we could do that, right? Especially if you have a child that is somewhat rebellious. And has it come over to the Lord, right? You would love it if you could be saved for them. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Each individual person has to make a commitment to Christ. Each individual person has to confess and repent. So again, no support for this in the Bible. It's for believers those who confess Christ, those who confess their sin, those who repent of their sin, and again, a baby can't do that. Totally impossible. Now, why did John, when he appears in the wilderness, and he's preaching, why did he dress the way he did? I mean, look at that. Verse 6 tells us, about his clothing and his diet. It says he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was wild honey. So he's wearing this garment. And the interesting thing is the word clothed that's used in the perfect tense in Greek, which means this was not something that he put on to preach and then he took it off when he was done preaching. Like when I go home today, I'm going to change my clothes. It wasn't that at all. This was something that he wore all the time. That's what the perfect tense tells us. This was his usual mode. So he was clothed and still clothed, as the Greek would say, but he was clothed with camel's hair. And it's interesting, the reason why he was clothed in camel's hair is because he was a prophet, and that's how a prophet in the Old Testament dressed. You have Zechariah 13.4 tells us that the prophet wore a rough garment or a garment of hair. You have in 2 Kings 1.8, King Azahiah recognized that Elijah was there when he asked to describe him. And he described him as a hairy man and a girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. So he knew it was Elijah. 
So the garb that he was wearing was the garb of a prophet. And John was really the last of the Old Testament prophets. Linsky tells us that since Elijah had prefigured John the Baptist in his stern preaching of repentance, you have a similar dress. His attire was just exactly like Elijah. Now that wasn't an accident because John the Baptist, we're told, is Elijah to come. And we're also told he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So when Malachi talked about the messenger and the messenger that was going to be coming would be Elijah, we're told who this messenger is. It's John the Baptist. So his clothing was made of camel's hair. That was a loose robe that was woven with camel's hair. It was very rough. It was very heavy, very hairy. Doesn't sound comfortable at all. Usually poor people would wear garments like this because they couldn't afford something else. Or you'd had somebody that was very ascetic trying to set themselves apart for more stern religious practice. So they would dress like this. It also says he wore a leather belt around his waist. That would be a piece of untanned leather. And it would correspond with that coarse coat. But what's very interesting is that others that would dress and wear their robes and wear their belt around their waist, many times you could tell the wealth of a person just based upon the belt that they were wearing because they would decorate it. But John the Baptist didn't do that either. And to even top things off, look at his diet. His diet was locusts and wild honey. Does that make you want to run out to our lunch? I'm serving locusts and wild honey back there. You ready to... <laughs> Nobody's staying, right? <laughs> I can take the wild honey. I don't know about the locusts. There were actually four kinds of locusts that the Jews could eat. We're told in Leviticus 11.22... These of them you may eat, the locust in its kind, and the devastating locust in its kind, and the cricket in its kinds, and the grasshopper in its kind. So you had a little bit of a variety there. And then they would prepare it in various ways. And they would use this kind of food for various occasions. They would do it in times of famine, which would make sense if there's not much food. They would, again, use it as part of a regular diet, especially if you were poor. And then the wild honey, some believe that it was actually a vegetable product like the, that sweet gum that comes from the leaves of certain trees. But I, I tend to lean toward real bee honey. Because we're actually told that because you think, again, they're where? In the wilderness? And he's eating bee honey? Where's this coming from? Well, you can find bee in other places besides the hives. Listen to Deuteronomy thirty-two thirteen. It says, He made him ride on the high places of the earth, and he ate the produce of the field, and he made him suck honey from the rock. Honey from the rock. Uh, you have in 1 Samuel 14, 25, all the people of the land entered the forest and there was honey on the ground. We had a beekeeper last year put out boxes on our property in exchange for the, the honey. And uh, sometimes they would leave the box and they would build a hive up in the tree. But for the most part, they stay there. They stay in that area. But you could hear them buzzing around. You didn't go over there. I didn't anyway. But we all know, you know, honey comes from the hive, comes from the bees. Anybody know what honey is? Let's test your kids. What is honey? I'm really going to ruin your lunch now. It's, bee, it's, it's, it's vomit. It's bee vomit. That's what honey is. But it's some pretty good vomit, isn't it? 
All right, I just ruined everybody's lunch, right? Well, that's what he ate. He ate locusts and wild honey. And he had this pretty uncomfortable garment on as he's out in the wilderness. It also tells us in verse 7 about his message that he was preaching. And here's what he was saying. Very brief. After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. Who's he talking about? Jesus. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John first talks about how he looked at himself, because if you remember, his popularity was growing. After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. I mean, that very piece that fastens the sandal. I can't even stoop down and do that. That was the, the job of the lowest slave that would wash the feet as you would enter the house. You remember in John 13, when the disciples came in the house with Jesus, there was no one to wash the feet. There was no slave present. So none of the disciples were going to do it. So Jesus did it. Remember? But this would line up really with how John thought about himself. As you remember in John 3 and verse 30, he said, He must increase and I must decrease. That gave the entire purpose behind his preaching. He was there to point his hearers to the Messiah. That was his whole point. That's what it meant to be a forerunner. He was the herald who directed everyone's attention away from himself and toward the coming king. So John says that Jesus is so mighty that, again, he couldn't take off his sandal. And he also revealed, I baptize you with water. But there is one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so again, it raises another question. What is the baptism with the Holy Spirit? I mean, we're on the subject of baptism, right? Some say it's praying in the Spirit. Or some say it's praying for God to give you the Holy Spirit. And then once you get the Holy Spirit... The evidence of getting the Holy Spirit is this ability to speak in tongues. But I contend that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is simply receiving the Holy Spirit at salvation and not after. You don't have to pray for the Holy Spirit. When God saves you, He gives you the Holy Spirit. How do we know this? Well, we know this from... Many passages that reference this. For example, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So we were all immersed into one body. Romans 8, 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. Uh, to me, that's a clincher right there. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not even a Christian. So don't sit here and tell me that as a Christian, I have to pray and ask God to give me His Holy Spirit. If it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't be a Christian. Makes no sense. Another verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. He says the Holy Spirit is in you and has been given to you by God. And again, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, none of us could be saved. Titus 3, 5, and 6 says that he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. 
whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, at the beginning, the apostles had to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? They didn't say they had to pray for the Holy Spirit, but they had to wait. But once the Spirit of God came, Acts chapter 2, He was now permanently coming. See, in the Old Testament, a person was saved the same way in the New Testament. You couldn't be saved without the Holy Spirit. But when we would look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, we would find Him in various ways, in various roles. When you get into the New Testament, you're told that the Holy Spirit will come in you and He will be with you permanently. They weren't told that in the Old Testament. That's why you hear David in Psalm 51, when he's confessing his sin with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah, what does he pray? Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. See, we couldn't pray that today because we have the Holy Spirit permanently. And you can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. I think that's very clear. Now earlier, I did mention from Ezekiel, a passage, Ezekiel 36.25, when we were talking about the sprinkling of water, I want to look at it again, but this time I want to talk about what it does mean. So if you have your Bible, you want to turn over into the Old Testament, go to Ezekiel 36, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 24. And by the way, this is what the meaning of whatever's taught in Ezekiel 36, this is the meaning in John 3, 5, and 6, because it's a reference. Ezekiel 36, 24 says, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And then John 3, 5 and 6 says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. These two passages are talking about the regenerative work of the Spirit of God at salvation. What is the context of John 3? You must be what? Born again. What is the context of Titus 3? He's showing them what they used to be like and what they are now and how they got there. All of us got there the same way. And that was through salvation in Christ. This is not a reference to some ecstatic experience. But this is a reference to the purification of the new covenant and the transformation of the new birth. That's what it's referring to. So Mark says about John the Baptist, he says his message, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the sandal of him who is coming. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And every person who is saved is baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, when you read in the book of Acts, let me tell you something that's going on. The book of Acts is history. The book of Acts is also transition. We see the transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant. We do see situations where when the Spirit came, they spoke in other languages. 
But I remind you, it wasn't gibberish. Gibberish is not a language. They spoke in a language. And the whole point was, one, to communicate the gospel. Number two, each time it occurred, you had Jew and Gentile present. You go back and look at all the instances in the book of Acts, and you'll find Jew and Gentile present. And it was done that way so the Jew would say, the Gentile got the same Holy Spirit as we did. So it wouldn't create... Two bodies of people, but one body. That body in Christ. So now we hear the course of this gospel. We hear Mark telling us it's about Jesus Christ. We hear him telling us about the forerunner of Christ. That voice in the wilderness calling for repentance and calling for the forgiveness of sins, and demonstrating that by water baptism, but it would be Jesus, it would be the Messiah who would come, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that was fulfilled after His ascension, and it continues to be fulfilled today. But the question for the moment is simply this, have you confessed Christ Let's take that word that talked about agreeing. Do you agree with what the Bible says about Jesus? Do you believe when the Bible says that he was without sin, that he could not sin? Do you believe when the Bible says he was born of a virgin, that he was born in that manner? Do you believe that when the Bible says that he died on the cross and he resurrected on the third day, do you believe that? Because if you're not willing to confess Christ, you can't be saved. And then if you do agree with what the Bible teaches about Jesus, do you agree with what the Bible teaches about your sin? Sometimes we're out there kind of patting ourselves on the back of the head and we feel really good about ourselves, but in true reality, we are really wretched sinners. I know that there are Some believers that don't want to call themselves that. But what do you call yourself when you continue to sin? A redeemed sinner. So have you confessed Christ? Have you confessed your sin? Have you repented? Repentance is a A turning away. Turning away from sin and turning to God. You turn from sin, you turn to God. That's what the Thessalonians did. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 speaks of it in that manner. So coming to Christ, He's the only one that can cleanse you of all your sin. He's the only one that can forgive you of all your sin. He's the one that paid the price for your sin. You deserve death. You deserve hell. You deserve His punishment, His judgment. And unless you repent and turn to Christ, you will be left to carry out that punishment through all eternity. And the reason why it's eternal is because you will never be able to satisfy God when it comes to you paying enough penitence for your sin. You and I have no power to forgive our sin. We have no power to forgive anybody for their sin. Only Christ does. And you have to come embracing Him and Him alone, confessing Him and Him alone, in order for Him to save you. So I would say fulfill John the Baptist's ministry this morning. By turning to Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this time that we've had in your word. We thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist. And Lord, what we have learned about him, his obedience to preach and proclaim, to prepare the people for the Messiah, for Christ. And Lord, we're thankful that we can look back and we can see these events, historical events that took place. 
And Lord, that we can understand how this applies to us today. And Lord, I pray with all my heart that every person in here will confess you as Lord. Every person in here will confess their sin, turn from their sin and turn to Christ and be saved. And I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.